The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. How can banks navigate choppy markets and rising geopolitical risk? Andrea Orchel, CEO of pan-European lender Unicredit, gives us some insight. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv, a London Stock Exchange Group business. In his first strategic plan in December, Unicredit Chief Executive Andrea Orcel promised to return 16 billion euros to investors by 2024. Weeks later, volatile markets and growing political tensions are raising the bar for European lenders. I sat with the Italian bank CEO to discuss how the unfolding macro scenario is affecting his strategy and what role could M&A play. Welcome everybody to the latest event in our 2022 Reuters Breaking Views prediction series. I am very pleased to be joined here today by Andrea Orcel, the CEO of Unicredit. Welcome, Andrea. Benvenuto. Thank you. So let me just go straight into our conversation and and start with a topic that I am sure uh, is very much in investors' mind at the moment. So we have seen that markets are very choppy. So as the leader of one of Europe's biggest bank with operations across the continent, how do you view the current situation and how is that impacting your day-to-day operations and maybe even your strategy? Uh, Thank you. Um, Well, as I had a similar event like this one with uh, our employees today who asked me the same question, I think um, I would say two things. One, on our new multi-year plan, we have clearly said that we were going to assume a macro scenario that was relatively bland and uh, not improving to the same level of everybody else because we wanted to focus on alpha and not beta. If you look at how the, 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 the year has started, it's actually started worse than our bland scenario. So um, goes to show that every time you do a, a business plan, it is obsolete the moment you present it. So what do you do in those, in those environments? You focus on what you control and that's what the team is doing. And we can take benefit from the fact that we have a very diversified franchise And that means that those events and those choppy markets do not affect the franchise in the same way. And there are things that go better in one place and less well in another, and we try to offset. But generally, we are uh, quite uh, conservative and we are quite focused on delivering on what we control. And at the moment, that seems to be working. I, I, I hear you, um, Andrea, and clearly maybe the, the current macro scenario is not as benign as some people had envisaged at the end of last year. But what about, I mean, if, if we can go into some more specifics, interest rates, for instance, um, I mean, those are normally a positive development for banks. And uh, I mean, do you still expect them to rise and maybe help you um, reach that goal? So offsetting some other elements. 
Well, uh, we everyone expects them to rise more rapidly, especially in the US, but uh, Europe will need to look at that and uh, take the lead. Obviously, there is a broader macro and geopolitical situation to take into account that may affect interest rates to a greater extent. We also see inflation. So if you start going through all those, we have some more positives. We also have some more negative because inflation also means cost. So it's a question of how those to balance. As I said, at the moment, if we focus on what on our plan and on the delivery, we're able to offset one with the other and we are on track. Okay, let's uh, maybe talk a little bit about your plan. So you have been at the helm of Unicredit since April, and then in December you unveiled your strategic plan in which you promised to return uh, 16 billion euros to investors between now and 2024, and also, um, you know, pledge to deliver returns of 10%. Uh, I, I'm just wondering whether you can maybe, you know, guide us a little bit through this, this plan. I mean, if we look at the market valuation at the moment, there just seemed to be a certain degree of skepticism, maybe, that, you know, those goals can be achieved, again, just reading by the valuations. But, you know, how come and, and what would you say uh, maybe to, to those who are sort of a little bit doubtful at the moment? So... Um... Our plan is predicated on three levers. Uh, the first lever is net revenues, and we use that metric because uh, given the discipline with which we want to target revenues, we want to make sure that people that uh, provide loan, provide credit, uh, chase NII, understand that it comes with the risk of losses, and therefore it's not exactly the same thing as fees. So we offset our provisions from NII, and then we add fees. So we have a net revenue lever. We then have a more normal cost level, which in our case has to be offset by the significant investment that we want to make in IT. And then the third one is our organic capital generation. Ultimately in a bank, what you distribute is a direct relation of the organic capital you generate uh, above what you started the year with. So why the skepticism? Um, first, I do think that it's a slightly different approach from what others have. And the market is always pondering, is that the right approach, is that not? The second thing, I would have thought that on the lever that is usually more credible for a bank like Unicredit cost, we are facing a lot of inflation. So the key question is, yeah, you have delivered in the past, but uh, there is inflation. How are you going to manage that? The second thing is net revenues. Um, this uh, Unicredit is a bank that comes from a period of uh, retrenchment. And therefore, in the foreseeable past or in the recent past, we haven't been asked or the team has not been asked to deliver top line growth. All of a sudden, we're saying, OK, we're strong. We've cleaned up. We're in a strong position let's go deliver top line growth. It is fair for investors to say, are you gonna be able to do that? Now, from my vantage point, um, I see the energy and I see the drive of the people on the front line. I also see the discipline of those people and the, uh, let's say, determination to show what they're capable of. So I'm actually quite optimistic, but it is fair for investors to wait for a few quarters of delivery 
before they pass judgment. And for the time being, we've given three. Um, let's see if we can give four, five, six, and then little by little, you know, the credibility will step in. On organic capital generation and the distribution, which uh, is in excess of 16 billion, it's, uh, let's say it's a slightly different way of, of addressing the distribution. Most, most peers or the standard in the industry is to express distribution as a percentage of net income of a year. Mm-hmm. In our opinion, that's a proxy, but not a good one, because uh, it is very different to make a I don't know, 4 billion net income using 3 billion of cap, additional capital or 4 billion net income using 500 million on your capital. In the first case, you can distribute a lot without denting your capital position. In the second case, oh, sorry, in the first case, you cannot distribute a lot. In the second case, you can. So we have set the whole bank on let's watch what matters. What matters is, is this business generating the equivalent of cash flow for an organization, capital that is distributable because it doesn't dent our existing strong capital position? And let's go through with that. Because Unicredit starts from a strong capital position, is very well reserved, and is shifting this model from a much more capital-heavy volume-driven approach to a more capital-like, uh, high-return, cap, um, capital-generative approach, we have a period of optimization where our capital generation will exceed very meaningfully our net income. And so as everybody looks at the distribution as a percentage of net income, the first reaction is, oh my God, they're distributing a lot. But if I take this year as an example, we generated 6.5 billion of additional capital organically, and we're distributing 3.75. So if you look at it like that, we're not distributing a lot, and actually our capital is going up. If you look at it as 3.75 billion out of 3.9, it is indeed a lot. So all these things are resulting in the market seems to appreciate where we put the bar, but the market is also saying, okay, show me quarter after quarter, but what you're saying is executable and that you're going to execute. And when you do, I'll give you credit for it. And that's fair enough. Is the deal that, you know, the comprehensive deal that you've renegotiated with Allianz on, on Friday going to help you in, in this push also on, you know, the revenue generation side in particular, generation of fees? Yes, it will. So as we had uh, one of the big debates that I had with shareholders and and more generally, when I arrived was, well, Unicredit sold all its factories. Banks today are not rewarded for lending, they're rewarded for generating fee income, which in itself is a statement. How are you gonna do that? You don't have factories, are you gonna buy them? And by the way, all those factories are extremely expensive. So if you're gonna buy them, how are you gonna buy them? And I think there are two models at the extreme and then a combination or phasing that have pros and cons. There is no sites fits all. You can internalize, have your factory and keep 100% of the value chain. But when you do that, you also need to manage the tail risk. You also need to have best products on the MIFID and so on and so forth. The other extreme is you join venture or you partner 
with a best-in-class provider and you distribute their best-in-class product, positive is they take care of the best-in-class product and of a tail risk, but you give away part of a value chain. I think both models can work. They're a function of how much are you rewarded for your distribution versus not having it internally. And secondly, how well are you integrated with your partner? If you're integrated very well technologically online and it's seamless, you will have best products, best condition, best after sale with very limited hassle. If you're not, then the internalization model is better. We believe that the agreement with Allianz is a blueprint because it's predicated first and foremost on long-term partnership, technologically integrate, technological integration, design of product, joint training and marketing. They're well known after sales support. And we think that over the next one, two, three years, we will be able to get that integration to a level where we will be able to give a better, pro a better service. And we think that the trade-off of getting these advantages with what we leave on the table in terms of part of the value chain that they keep for themselves is well worth it. And so we would like to replicate that approach more generally, and we will do that. In some other areas, we have fully internalized and we will continue to be internalized, especially on the corporate side, FX risk management, you know, interest rate risk management, that's a so-called internal factory. We have scale and we're not going to externalize. So there is no size fits all. It's how you manage it that counts. Understood, uh, Andrea, thank you. Um, so the strategic plan, which you've, you know, helped us um, understand a little bit better now, I mean, is obviously predicated on organic growth but you're also well known for being a, an international deal maker. I mean, one of the best known investment bankers when it comes to M&A in the financial services arena. And uh, uh, indeed in the first few months of your new job, I mean, the uh, job of CEO of Unicredit, you looked at Italian bank Monte de Paschi di Siena for a possible acquisition. Is that deal completely dead? So, um, first of all, I'd like to say what I repeated. Most of the value in Unicredit today is internal. It is clear. As I said uh, to somebody who was asking me, we started from a market cap of 17 billion out of 55. That means that executing correctly from shareholders should, over time, bring you to bridge that gap. There is no deal that is going to beat that. None. If I was at 50 billion, we could have a much different conversation. But today, the bar is very high because the value we can create internally is very high. And diverting the attention of people from execution of the plan can only be done if it's really well worth it. That's point one. Point two, I would say, let's say that I arrived and Monterey was already in flight. <laughs> uh, so it needed to be evaluated. And that hits another belief of mine. There is M&A is not good or bad. There is good M&A at the right condition, bad M&A at the wrong condition. I think at the time, very constructively, I felt there was a interaction with the key shareholder. And we found a set of conditions 
that they felt they could live with, we felt we could live with. And actually, when we presented it to the market, the market moved position from absolutely not to, well, hang on. At these conditions, if it does what you're saying, maybe yes. Then we took time, and usually you don't do that in M&A because you announce the deal done rather yeah. than say, I'm going to do it uh, if it fits that framework. But I think it was necessary to go to front load the framing because of all the noise there was around Monteribasque. As we went through the process, it was clear that there was a broader view, let's say, uh, in Italy, that the deal could not be done at the condition we had mutually agreed. And that's fine. And that is a demonstration of what I say about good and bad M&A. At those conditions, it worked for Unicredit. Without those conditions, it did not. And it's no hard feelings. I think uh, at the moment, um, it is in the best interest of everybody that uh, the bank finds a solution. I, I, I suspect that it is in flight. And therefore, at this point, our focus is we're in, we are executing on what we have. And as far as we're concerned, we've moved on. Okay, no, uh, quite clear. Uh, but let, let me just uh, maybe, you know, ask you another question about Italy, because obviously Italy is your home base. I mean, you've got 40% of revenue there, more or less. And there's quite a bit of consolidation in the banking sector. I mean, there's at least three deals in the last 12 months have been announced. So is there nothing that interests you? I mean, if it's in the same market where you operate, there could be synergies in conducting so, deals. Um, so as you say, anything that fits our criteria in the 13 economies where we operate, we have a duty to look at it in detail and to understand exactly at which condition we would move and at which condition we would not. So we do that in Italy like we do that everywhere else. And I think that um, what I've learned in my career is that you should always be in a position if something comes up to say, yes, I've looked at it. I know what works, I know what doesn't work. So given what it is at the moment, no, or given what it is at the moment, yes. As opposed to, let me go and do some analysis and get back to you in a month and a half, because that means that opportunities pass. Now, having said that, um, in Italy, we have about 11% market share. It's very focused in the segments that we want to be focused in. The ROAC at 13% CT1 is in excess of 11%. We have good growth coming down the pike. Um, we have scale, we have no pressure to do things, and we have thought that the condition at which certain other deals could have been done were not the right ones, and therefore we've moved on. The other thing is that we need to prioritize what we do because we don't have never-ending capacity to do M&A. So if we choose one, we need to be feeling that that one is the right one in the pecking order. And I will remind everybody what I said about M&A. You know, first of all, it's not an end in itself, it's an accelerator. Second of all, what are these terms and conditions? One, strategic fit, easy to determine. And I think most analysts would know what fits and what doesn't. 
strengthen the franchise. You just said it. If a market consolidates, some things may strengthen you, some things will not. But then there is one that people forget uh, sometimes. They need not to derail what we committed to a market in December. So if it derails my return on tangible equity, no. If it derails my uh, capital return, and the capital return, as I said, we have capacity to do it, but we don't have never-ending capacity to do it. And I will not put it at risk because all of our credibility will be affected. So because of that, the bar is high. And in Italy, like in Germany, like in Austria, like in the CE, it's a question of saying, okay, we believe we have a lot of value here, but windows open and close. This opportunity is open now at the right condition. Can we do it at the right condition? Can we execute without derailing what we're doing? Yes, then it's worthwhile pursuing. No, then it's my job to say no. And if I look at 100 opportunity and say no for those reasons 100 times, I know that it may appear like I will lose face. In my opinion, I will do what my shareholders want me to do. I, I, I hear you, but I mean, is it fair just to, to, to maybe conclude a little bit on this topic, but I mean, is it fair to say that as you deliver your plan, as, as your currency improves, you know, your share price, which has already gone up uh, since you joined, but, you know, uh, should probably go up higher, you know, to reflect the ambition of the plan. I mean, if your currency improves, I mean, would you, would you feel in a stronger position to evaluate the options? So firstly, as you said, uh, there, is, there is at the moment a, a gap between our plan and our evaluation, which is due to the market saying, being a little bit skeptical as I'm using your words and waiting for us to deliver. So while many people say, well, you know, you've done well, uh, if we truly believe in our plan, First, and we believe we're going to deliver in the short to medium term, uh, our currency should do better, not worse. And so there is that element to, to take into consideration. The second thing is, I think, uh, as you said, uh, will you feel a little bit better? I think that if as a result of our currency being much better, it also means that we have executed credibly enough and our franchise has momentum, is on the right path, is doing well, that is a better moment to do stuff than when you're at the beginning. And so for us, again, you never choose the time for things to happen. We need to look at them. We can't just say no now because no now, because that leads to mistakes. But we need to become, to be very, very disciplined in saying, and that's what I tell everybody, I'll look at everything. I'll do very, very little, unless I'm absolutely convinced it fits and it exceeds these parameters. Okay. I mean, you know, you, you, you explained that you're looking at various uh, opportunities and Unicredit recently looked at, a, at an opportunity in Russia where you have operations. Um, I, I'm just wondering, um, you know, given the, the current situation, I mean, what kind of questions are you getting from investors about your Russian presence? And what is your answer to maybe allay some of the concerns, you know, that you may be present at the moment? 
So um, Unicredit has been in Russia since 2007. Uh, I think we have about 1% market share in the market. We have 4,000 colleagues on the ground uh, out of more than 90,000. And you know the total equity or call it any measure of uh, deployment or risk or whatever you want to call it to the country is about three to 5%, whichever way you look at it. So on the other hand, it is a franchise that has always punched above its weight in terms of profitability and returns. And, uh, and when I say that, I say we consider the cost of equity local to be in the teens, away in the teens, and we exceed. So we have a franchise that I think in the broader context of Unicredit is relatively small, uh, but we have a franchise that has delivered what it was asked to deliver year in, year out. It is a franchise that has navigated through ups, downs, sanctions, and everything very seriously. And so that, that, was, that is the starting blocks. So I, I think we are comfortable and happy, like everybody else who has uh, some activities in Russia. We run scenarios, we review them, and uh, we try to be as ready as possible for what could be. And that's what we do. And, but I think from that standpoint, I think shareholders understand that we have a presence. It is not very big. Uh, it is absolutely in inverted commas affordable within a broader context of Unicredit. And it is a presence that has not affected the bank negatively, rather has consistently affected it positively from that standpoint. But I do understand that in the current geopolitical environment, you know, it is something that raises some questions and we're, we're trying to address them in as well as we can. But you do remain committed to the Russian franchise. We are committed to what we have in Russia. And as I said, it works well. We have a good team and we continue to, to move on that basis. Okay, so in, in a moment, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna hand over to Rob Cox's monitoring questions from the audience, but uh, I, I maybe wanted to ask you one more question, again on, on M&A, and this is because Unicredit, you will remember, was a pioneer over 10 years ago in executing a large cross-border deal. Unicredit bought HFB, HVB, which was at the time Germany's second largest bank. So. When, I mean, th those deals, you know, didn't really happen afterwards, you know, those, those big cross-border uh, acquisitions. I mean, when do you expect to see, again, cross-border activity of that kind in Europe? Well, I think that since those days, a lot of things happened and a lot of things changed. The uh, Europe, unfortunately, has gone through a long-dated up let's say downward in terms of uh, of getting out of the uh, of the crisis and then the pandemic and then so again and again and again and these deals are usually deals that are done when everybody's more positive uh, so that's point number one uh, secondly there was a, a hope an anticipation a bet that the eu would integrate a lot more rapidly that we would have a single banking market. The bet was predicated on 
in a European Union context where capital markets are not as developed as the US one, for example, banks are an inevitable plumbing and transmission system for economic policy and for companies moving around in the economic area. And therefore, the banking union is a foundation of that integration and therefore it's going to happen. Uh, as we know, there have been a lot of reasons, some good, some less good, as to why it has not. You know, uh, the benefit of purchasing or merging with a bank cross-border, if you need to have two separate legal entities, two separate regulators, two separate capital structure and funding rates, uh, you cannot branchify, you cannot share system. I mean, the list is quite long becomes, okay, so what is exactly the benefit? And on the other hand, what is the impact of the complexity of all that? Now, for Unicredit, having, being already on the ground, deployed, and Unicredit being that, we've had more than a decade to learn to live with that. And now some of those markets are actually our domestic market. And so we have optionality and we can do things there. And we have learned how to be, and we will become better even, we can navigate that in a way that is not too prohibitive. But if you're a bank that is in country A and says, okay, I'm maxed out and it would be good to be also in country B and C. Immediately you say, what are my cost synergies? Limited, if not, if not nil. What are my capital synergies? Probably negative. What are my funding? None. What is my revenue synergies? None. So it becomes a deal where many shareholders will correctly say, I'm sorry, you're more complex. You're not as simple a story. And if I want to buy country B and C, I'll do it directly. I don't need to do it through you. So it's become more complicated because of all that. Now, if, and I hope for Europe in the next few years, the macro becomes better, the growth that we're seeing out of the pandemic consolidates, some of the changes in regulation and greater convergence occurs, then you could see the foundation emerging for doing more of these deals. But for the time being, I, I have difficulty in seeing them. Yeah, but the time being, I mean, that would be three to five years, I mean, at least, before we reach this mythical banking union, you, you, even more. You know, I don't know, it's very <laughs> difficult for me. I know that this is a prediction session. We're trying to I predict, think many yes. people, that's better that I have got that wrong. So I will leave it at that. But okay. I don't think it's a, it's a thing for tomorrow. That's for sure. Okay, well, listen, thank you. Um, I'm going to now ask uh, Rob Cox uh, whether he can bring in some questions from uh, sure. our audience. Sure, thank that you. was good, good stuff, guys. Um, let me just go through some of these questions. There's a few that all kind of come under the same umbrella, but I'll, I'll start it out this way. Hello, Andrea. How does Unicredit think about sustainability now and for the future? And I'll have some other questions, but maybe you can start with the big picture and maybe that'll answer some of these other questions people have about your commitment to green finance basically so i think um so i think uh, for us uh, a few things first of all esg is e but it's also sng and we get trapped too many times in thinking that esg is e only um number two 
I think that for us, um, and we've done a lot of challenge internally, it is kind of difficult to go to our clients and drive the right behaviors if we cannot point to ours as being an example. So it needs to start from, from an E, from an S, from a G standpoint. Unicredit needs to be truly be able to say, hey clients, we have a partnership. Look at what we are committing to do in the next five years. That's pretty tough and ambitious, but this is the right thing to do. So now let's talk about you. Because if we cannot do that, I think it's kind of a sometimes hypocritical discussion. And so for us, we're putting very strong milestones internally uh, for the next three to five years to try and hit what we think is an appropriate transition and appropriate sustainability, appropriate governance and appropriate way to behave. And then you get to the last piece of the chain, which is your clients. And I think that is a difficult balance because, um, and, and there has been very um, passionate debates on this internally, which I think it's, it's good and it demonstrates that people care. On the one hand, no one would disagree. We need to transition as fast as possible and need to be serious about it and quickly. On the other hand, it is very different to help transition a company in uh, Denmark than a company in Bosnia. And you need to insert the local differences and be the correct agent of support and change rather than one size fits all, because otherwise you're missing by one or the other. So the way we have addressed that is to have some clear principle, we abide that, and we take them very seriously. And then to say, well, if we're doing here something that looks a little bit more flexible than we're doing somewhere else, are we sure that we're doing that for the right reasons and it fits our principles? And, you know, to be honest, I think we'll get some wrong and I think we'll get some right. But I think the, the team is very determined to get that right. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm quite optimistic that you will see in actual facts what we can do in terms of progression. It's interesting you raise that. One of our predictions in the predictions book we produced was that E, S, and G would be the big breakup, right? The, 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 this bundling of these terms doesn't always make sense because as you say, you could make the environmentally sound decision to stop lending to a Bosnian coal mine or something, but that may put 5,000 people out of work, which would hurt the S in the, in your, you know, in the ESG. So it's, I, I, I think that's what you're explaining, trying to get that balance. Yeah, and, I would, and I would go further because I would say if those uh, 5,000 people and their leadership are really committed to a transition, but because of a starting point, they are further backwards. It is our job to help them accelerate as much as possible rather than, for example, stop and wash our hands and leave a problem. Somebody else is going to have to pick it up. So we do think that to get the globe to transition faster, it's a combination of being very serious and determined because you can't flex, but at the same time, trying to accelerate the transition of the laggards uh, when they're in, a good, in good face and everything else, of course, not just wash your hands out of it, because I think that will not accelerate the sustainability. It will delay it. Yeah. I guess a sort of sub question that's come through on the list on the questions here is 
uh, and it's sort of related to this, do banks have the technical expertise on staff? And by banks, I think he, this person means Unicredit, has the technical expertise on staff currently to understand carbon mitigation projects and enable low cost green financing at low risk. It's really just a question of, to, to answer, to go to your point about the Bosnia example, do you have the staff, do you have the capabilities in house or is this something you're actually having to spend a lot of time to get people up to speed on? So I would say that, uh, and I don't want to generalize, but I'll generalize to a sector and to us as well, we're not there. I mean, if you think about it, the, the rate of acceleration, correctly so, on ESG is massive. And the skill set is a different skill set from uh, a credit officer or something else. So it's a combination, and that's what we're doing, of internalizing some core competencies and, and making it a skill set. And in fact, in green financing advisory, we've done that starting about three, four, five years ago. So we are, I think, at the cutting edge. In some other things, we're behind. So when we, we recently evaluated uh, a financing in a challenging environment and uh, we stopped the debate and I said, okay, we need to go to an external think tank and get the facts because we're all speculating and we need to have the facts. So I would have thought that if we do what we do well in two, three years, all the banks will have a very deep understanding of a lot of these issues in-house or with satellites of, you know, subject matter experts that they go to when they are in debate. Because as you, as the person who raised that question raised it correctly, you need to take a view on a credit risk. Banks can look at it in every color and aspect. You need to take a view on drilling in a place where you shouldn't be drilling. That's at the other extreme is probably easy. But then you have a lot of gray areas in the middle, and those gray areas are very difficult to get to if you don't have a lot of understanding of the technicals. And I think banks are moving fast, but not fast enough because, because we are more and more uncomfortable with uh, anything that we might do unwillingly, I mean, uh, without realizing it. Uh, switching a bit from the green finance area, do you think that London will remain Europe's main financial center or has the impact of, of Brexit not yet been fully felt? <laughs> so having lived 35 years in London, I, uh, but now being fully European Union, I sincerely hope for London that they do, to be honest. And I, I would also go as far as to say that I sincerely hope for Europe that they do. I think Europeans in general and Brexiteers and non-Brexiteers could benefit from having a financial center that has critical mass. And it is difficult for me from a technical standpoint at this juncture to see others in Europe. So I think the race is, can we have a true financial center for Europe or not? And the not has a whole bunch of other consequences. And I do think uh, London has the scale, but obviously Brexit dented it uh, for some good reasons. Uh, but I think if um, certain decisions are made and there is a more constructive approach, uh, potentially Europe can have or continue to have its financial center. Well, that was a very diplomatic answer, given that you should have just said Milan should be the center of, of uh, yeah. European finance, of course. 
<laughs> let me put it this way. It should absolutely be. It will take some time. <laughs> um, speaking of, of, there was a couple of questions related to M&A, and I know we talked a little bit about that, but um, what, what, would, what would be something someone suggested might be a good strategic fit uh, would be if Mediobanca were up for sale, would Unicredit want to own it? Um, look, I think uh, there has been a lot of speculation on a number of deals in Italy. I think if you look at our setup, um, it is certainly not one of the things that fit the best. I guess it would be buying a factory, wouldn't it? And as you said at the outset, factories are very expensive at the moment. So <laughs> trying to pay for something that costs one times book or more, I guess might not work. What, what, let me ask you, there's a sort of question uh, related to uh, the views about the corporate bond market. So there was, the question was, it, will Europe, or do you actually see some progress in this idea of going from a bank lending driven market to one that is more like a corporate bond market like you might find in the United States? Do you see any movement on that? Do you, are you optimistic or is this is one of those things that you and I probably talked about 20 years ago um, as everyone hoping to happen as a result of the single currency? Where are you on that? Well, look, I, has there been progress? Of course there has been. Are we keeping up? No, we're not. We're still, it's still an economic block that is, uh, if I may, overly dependent on bank lending and bank financing of their sort. And I think, uh, you know, that combined with uh, the risk and restrictions we have today uh, makes, it a, makes it a disadvantage for Europe. So I think Europe should parallel track really developing capital markets that are capable of absorbing its growth. In the meantime, the question is that the only backstop is banks and banks until recently did not have the, or increasingly did not have a strength to backstop the whole thing. And the incentives are not going in that direction. Yeah. Um, related to interest rates, uh, and I'm gonna ask this question and hand it back to Lisa to wrap things up, but there are kind of a couple that came through. What should the spread be between interest charged and interest earned? And sort of corollary to that is to help reduce inflationary pressure, should the difference between interest charged and interest earned be less than 3%? So basically a question about this, the idea that your net interest margins may, you may actually have some net interest margin soon. Well, um, I think rates. So I think this goes back to the model we're trying to build probably. Uh, everybody tends to look at the margin that we have uh, or not have. People should also see how much capital we need to deploy to get that margin. And people never asked about that. With tightening regulation, what does it mean that from you know, one point of margin, we need to deploy an increasing amount of capital. That capital has a cost of 10%. And as the capital raises at 10%, that margin cannot, that margin net of risk, obviously, cannot cover it. So what is the economic decision? Not doing it or trying to widen the margin. And that's why I think we can't have it all because if we have, as we should, extremely conservative banks well covered, then we put the layer of capital and we say, where before it was X, now it is 4X. Then we say shareholders should be 
compensated at 10%. And when you go and look at event margin cover, if you look at it, banks in Europe used to have cost income ratios in the 80s, 70s, 80s. Now we're in the 45, 55s mostly. Look at their return on equity. It's still not there. Why? Because capital has gone through the roof. And so we want banks to be absolutely zero risk. And that's also fine. But that comes to, to implicit tightening on your lending. And so I do think that these things need to balance out. So my answer to that question would be, tell me where the end game scenario will end with respect to capital allocation to various segments of lending and to, I don't know, calendar provisioning and provisioning that we need to do to be in the game. Then let's calculate together what cost income ratio you should have to clear cost of equity. In some cases, you need to be below 30. Can we be below 30? Your banks are inefficient. Below 30 starts being a little bit far-fetched. So I do, I do think that that's the question. The only way you can do that is if you have an entire business staffed by robots, basically. Fundamentally, that which is why you think about it, banks are shifting more, and especially in Europe, more, 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 more on fees because the capital charge is not there. And why they're going more, 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 more digital because obviously you take a cost through the digital environment. So, so I do think that uh, it's a very good point, but if we want banks to also fulfill some sort of a engine to growth and to support of the economy, uh, we're trying to hit too many variables at the same time. And while we're all happy that uh, we're more solid and everything else, and you know, it also has a read across on other things. But is there, is, I just want to follow up on that is the, at the corporate level, so much of the, the low capital intensity, high fee business has been taken up, taken by the American investment banks, for instance, as an example. Um, is there a way for European banks like Unicredit to fight back? Um, look, I, I think I've been in that environment for a long time. And I, I do think that we, we Europeans have bundled the entire investment banking debate in one thing, but it's a bad thing. And there are aspects that are better than others. Uh, but uh, how do you say in English, you throw the baby with the bathwater, probably is the right way of looking at it. I think there is an opportunity not to catch up with the Americans. Uh, they have too much of a lead. But I think there is an opportunity given that Europe as an investment banking market is less and less attractive because of all these, its idiosyncrasies and structures that, and that's what we're doing. If we are much more targeted and we say, we have X number of clients, those are SMEs, they're reachable mostly by us. Can we provide advice and our investment banking services that create fee income by accompanying them and our uh, ambition is to kill it on that segment, but not to try and become all things to all people. If banks do that, I think there is a there is a very significant opportunity in Europe. But if you let yourself be taken to, oh, here, I can do this. So let me go out. Then it's where you lose your competitive advantage versus people who have been at this job for a long, long time. 
Well, thanks, Andrea. That's, I think that handles most of the questions that came from the audience. I'll hand it over to you, Lisa. Yes, uh, thank you very much indeed. I have a, a final question to uh, round up uh, our uh, intense and very varied conversation. Um, Unicredit has its home base in Italy, as we said before, and you will remember that Italian banks were hit very, very hard during the Eurozone crisis of a few years back. Um, I mean, Italian public debt has, has risen even above, you know, the levels back in those days because of the pandemic. Um, I mean, is this a concern, you know, or are these Eurozone breakup fears finally a thing of the past? Um, I think you can judge on the breakup fears being a thing of the past when you get to the brink. And I don't think we, are, we have been close to the brink for some time. And I knock on wood that we'll never be back there. I do think that if you look at the volatility on, uh, for example, BTPs or our spreads versus bones, in the recent past, through the pandemic, through volatile environment, political or others, yes, they move, but, but nowhere close to where they were moving in the past. So I do think that there is an element of trust, that there is commitment, there is convergence. And uh, I have to say that, um, as someone said, uh, we seem to have a winning team at the moment in politics. and. Uh, I hope we keep it going. And that is really helping us to recover credibility and hopefully to address that over the longer term. And the more the time passes and we are faced with issues and the market and everybody sees how we deal with them positively, I think uh, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy on the positive side. So we hope it goes that way. Okay, so much. on this positive note, thank you. I just wanted to thank you, Andrea Orcel, for joining us today at the Reuters Breaking Views 2022 Predictions event. Let's hope we can have you maybe again next year. Thank, thank you very much. much. Have a good afternoon. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslik in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.